This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. New guidelines for alcohol consumption came out this past week, giving us all something new to think about when it comes to our health. Researchers with the Canadian Centre for Substance Abuse say there is really no safe level of alcohol consumption. And if we want to avoid a moderate or high risk of cancer, heart disease, and stroke, we should limit ourselves to one to two drinks a week. That is a big change from the previous guidelines of just a decade ago, which advised no more than 10 drinks a week for women, 15 for men. What led to this significant change? And more importantly, what, if anything, will you do with this new information? Libby was joined by an expert panel on Wednesday to discuss. Dr. Aaron Hoban is with Public Health Ontario. Dr. Kevin Shield is a scientist with Cam H's Institute for Mental Health Policy Research. And Dr. Peter Butt is co-chair of the project to develop Canada's alcohol guidance. Well, it was quite clear that evidence had emerged in the successive 10 years from the 2011 guidance that we we published that um, alcohol was more toxic than previously appreciated, particularly with regards to the cancer evidence, the heart disease evidence, and indeed internationally what we saw with the UK, France, and Australia, that they had extensively reviewed more recent literature and, and found that the relationship in terms of alcohol consumption and harm was um, shifting. We also knew that people drinking within the guidance that we provided before in 2011 that you referenced were indeed coming to harm even at that level. So it was imperative that we update the information and provide it to the Canadian public. And Dr. Shield, was this looking back at studies that have already been done, or were these new studies? So there was quite a substantial number of studies published before the previous guidelines, between the previous guidelines and the guidelines. And those were all reviewed by methods which we call a systematic review. So we systematically searched the literature. So any published study that mentions alcohol and these harms were systematically looked at and assessed in terms of the evidence that they provide that alcohol causes those harms. And so we looked at over 6,000 studies which were published in the interim, and that's what led to these new guidelines. Dr. Hoban, uh, you're focusing on labeling, and uh, it's your contention that putting warning labeling on uh, on alcoholic products will, will uh, improve things because people aren't aware. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Um, Canada is a world leader in designing effective tobacco warning labels and even most recently cannabis uh, warning labels. Yet alcohol is largely exempt from these labeling regulations in Canada. And given the relatively high health and economic burden from alcohol in Canada, there's a real opportunity to strengthen labeling measures uh, for alcohol. 
I'm wondering, doctor, but what do you tell people who find this to be actually quite extreme? Well, I think that rather than focusing on the one to two standard drinks per week that that is in the low-risk zone, the low to negligible risk zone, it's important to people for people to look at the all of the risk zones. So one to two would be considered low, three to six is moderate, and seven plus is increasingly high. So really, it's important for people to simply reflect on how much they're drinking, situate themselves within these risk zones, and decide if they want to make an adjustment, preferably downward, with regards to how much they're drinking. Because every every alcohol beverage that one drops in terms of their daily or weekly consumption is going to have an improvement in terms of their health and well-being. So there's a, there's a way to better health and well-being through this guidance. Is there anything else that we should know about this, Dr. Hoban? I mean, I think one of the um, main aims of the updated guidance, as well as the recommendation for labels, is to spark conversations in Canada like the one like the one that we're having right now about the health risks from alcohol, and to really start to shift perspectives of alcohol from a relatively benign substance to a substance with serious health risks like cancer. Canadians want more um, health information on alcohol containers, and this type of health information can um, increase their knowledge of the health risks of alcohol um, and can also uh, potentially reduce population-level consumption by about 7% um, in the sites with the labels compared to sites without those types of labels. So, well-designed labels can support um, consumers in making more informed and potentially safer alcohol uh, use decisions. Dr. Aaron Hoban with Public Health Ontario, Dr. Peter Butt, co-chair of the project to develop Canada's alcohol guidance, and Dr. Kevin Shield, scientist with CAMH's Institute for Mental Health Policy Research. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Staying with the same theme, what do you do if you want to enjoy going to a bar, a party, or another social occasion that usually involves alcohol? Maybe it's partly because it's dry or dryish January when people try to give up or cut back on drinking alcohol for a month. But there seems to be a lot of interest in fancy and festive non-alcoholic drinks and mocktails. Libby had a conversation about the trend with Gail Lynch, CEO of Zero Cocktail Bar in Toronto, and Renee Suen, food editor of Blog TO. Well, I, I have to almost plug in. I know that I'm the food editor at Blog TO, but recently uh, I did put together a trends list for food for 2023 for Chatelaine, and that was one of the first and top items that I mentioned. I mean, the whole um, zero proof or placebo. Uh, cocktails, as, as we all know it, more commonly as mocktails, has been a movement for the last number of years, but really has been embraced, I think, by uh, basically not just uh, teetotalers who generally, you know, might not choose to drink alcohol, but also people with varying reasons for living, you know, that sort of booze-free uh, lifestyle. And and like I was mentioning, I guess that you had mentioned earlier, there is dry, the dry January, but there are also other needs, like either for health or lifestyle needs, women who might be, you know, pregnant uh, for religious reasons or, you know, clean living advocates. There's various uh, members in in basically the community who might 
be looking for a more sophisticated drink that's not literally a Shirley Temple or a a pop, like a Coke or a Sprite. Well, yeah, and sometimes when you're out, if uh, you're the person not drinking, you know, people kind of look at you. So why is that? Um, if it's for me to answer, uh, I think that's the one thing is that there is that stigma. Generally, when I think people go out, it's uh, either for socializing, sometimes for networking. And we're starting to see this quite a bit also in the sort of work setting that, you know, there are individuals who can handle their, um, I guess, alcohol consumption, no problem. And then there's others who might be a little bit more sensitive. And in that sort of setting, you don't want to have that sort of stigma of looking like maybe you're not participating in that way. So the really great way of having, you know, these sort of virgin cocktails is that those who are abstaining from drinking alcohol can still be in that sort of social setting, still have a sophisticated and delicious drink, uh, but also not look like they're, you know, having, I guess, if you want to call it a a, a child's uh, sort of uh, friendly uh, <laughs> beverage. Uh, and the great, great thing right now is that there is so much effort put into that, that there are not only like tinctures or cordials or even, you know, like you want to call it infused juices, there are actually products on the market that are made to simulate a lot of those flavors that you might find normally in a alcoholic sort of spirit, uh, but they've been de-alcoholized um, or they have been made to have characteristics like it so that you can have those same flavors and yet at the same time not be inebriated in you know that social setting that you might be in. Gail Lynch, uh, when did you start getting into this and uh, uh, you know, uh, have you seen a big increase in interest? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I started this a year and a half ago. I, I built a bar on my patio uh, during the pandemic, just trying to do something tactile. And, you know, um, from there started really experimenting with different flavors. I've made every syrup, every shrub. I needed to understand those things. And as I looked at what was in the market, uh, to the chef's point, um, they're definitely great non-out spirits now. But when I started, um, I could find four things I could look at. Seedlet, uh, and kudos to them for being the first. Uh, teetotal wine is actually out of Toronto and Sexy AF. That, that's all I could find. And what so was I the thought, last one? Sexy AF. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, uh, right? And so, yes, yeah, so this is a trajectory, uh, upward trajectory. We have every spirit you can think about, whether you say it's assimilated to, you know, I mean, if you're going to get gin, silvery out of, uh, out of uh, uh, Milton here, you know, it's it has juniper and it has cardamom, the same as you would the alcohol spirit. The difference is there's no ethanol uh, within the zero proof or non out spirit. So we are on a trajectory moving up. Uh, so get out of our way and let us do it. Renee, especially, I think uh, this is catching on more with younger people than with older ones. Am I right? That's correct. I think it's just because of the, the breaking of the stigma that it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be something, um, you know, sugary and, and cheap and, um, and I guess con- considered like a childlike drink just to have the chance to give it another shot because, uh, Chancellor, you'll be very surprised. The flavors that come out and the enjoyability is very much high up there, uh, even though in the past it might have always been considered something that wasn't sophisticated. Renee Suen, food editor of Blog TO, and Gail Lynch, a CEO of Zero Cocktail Bar in Toronto. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, is it time to consider parking levies to boost City of Toronto's finances? We discuss next. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. How to find a creative new way to raise money in the face of a significant budget shortfall at the City of Toronto. City Councilors Diana Sachs, Chris Moyes, and Alejandra Bravo are touting parking taxes as a potential solution to transit funding shortfalls. It's not a new idea, but it has received renewed attention. Members of the transit advocacy group TTC Riders say it would bring in $500 million a year. Ten years ago, Toronto City Councillors rejected the idea because they felt businesses should not be penalized when they're offering parking spaces to employees for free. These charges do exist in places like New York, L.A., Chicago, Sydney and Melbourne, Australia, as well as in Montreal and Vancouver. Libby discussed the idea with our Tune Into the Town panel, Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor of Blog TO, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto. Well, all taxes, of course, are unpopular, and all taxes are extracting cash. There's no doubt about it. I think at least it's worth having the debate. I think that I think the, the councillors at least should be congratulated for raising it. It's never easy to raise taxes. You're, you're right, it can be unfair, but it, is, it, it does occur in, in many other cities. And for good reason, cities constantly need more money and you have to find a way in which you can get it. So I'm not against the debate. I'd be very careful about the amounts and there may be variations on, on where, you could, where you apply it and where you don't. So uh, the debate's worthwhile. I, I would not conclude on, on just just willy-nilly taking any any number, but I think it needs some some analysis and some public discussion. Okay. Well, Karen, it, it seems to me the last time I looked, and this, this ratio might be wrong at this point, where businesses paid much more in taxes than residential. And, and it also feels very undemocratic. You know, I know here our previous city councillor, like he could not care less about business and didn't listen. But, you know, the bottom line is that uh, we're here and we pay taxes here, but we don't vote here. So, uh, you know, it, it seems like, uh, you know, there's, there's, no real accountability. You know, I think most people understand that to have a healthy city, you have to have healthy businesses. But uh, but putting more on businesses seems to me unfair, Karen. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. The ratio between the rate at which businesses and corporations pay is two times. It was two and a half times. It may have been rationalized down, but it's at least double what uh, property taxpayers pay as a percentage of their land value. And so you can call it a parking levy, but the reality is it's just another tax on business. Yeah. Because some businesses will be able to recoup it. Some people, some businesses will not because the infrastructure to charge for parking is just not feasible. And so it, it just, just call it what it is. Just call it a parking tax on business. And then ask yourself, is this the right time to be imposing it? When, if you're going to put it in the downtown core, uh, vacancies are at an all time high. Uh, offices are scrambling to figure out what the return to work looks like. Um, there's, you know, already transit ridership is down because commuting patterns have changed. 
And so the debate was had 10 years ago, and the decision was made then not to proceed. Some of those reasons remain valid, but there's actually new considerations to make uh, in terms of are the repercussions of this additional tax worth the unintended consequences on business at this time? Can you imagine? So you're commuting to work because you don't want to take the subway. And, you know, suddenly you're being charged now another additional $5 to park or $10 a day to park. You're not going to come back to the office. You're just going to work from home. And so if we want to encourage people to come back to the office, this is the exact wrong approach. Well, exactly. Exactly. And it's hard for businesses, too, because I doubt that businesses that want to retain their their good employees are going to start charging their employees for parking. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that is not a great a great thing. I think for anyone um, in the in the job market uh, looking at a job, if you know that you have to pay for parking, um, that's definitely a deterrent. I, I think that there needs to be a distinction made though between businesses like small independent businesses and huge commercial operators like. Cadillac Fairview and Oxford properties, the ones that own the malls. Like, I think that taxing them for people to use the parking lots, they're pulling in so much money. So say you start... And those parking lots are so crazy. They're crazy (laughs) and they're huge. So I don't think the consumers should necessarily have to pay that tax, but maybe the mall operators should or the operators of huge properties, strip malls, big Walmart plazas. Um, But I do think that it, it would be not very popular to be to be levying this tax upon small independent businesses, especially in the downtown core, where parking is already kind of at a premium. Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor of Blog TO, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto. Fight backs tune into the town panel. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Both the province's integrity commissioner and the Ontario Auditor General have announced that they're doing their own respective investigations into the Ford government's Greenbelt plans. The integrity commissioner will be looking into the conduct of municipal affairs and housing minister Steve Clark after a complaint was made by incoming Ontario NDP leader Marit Stiles who commented on the curious timing of recent purchases of green belt land by powerful landowners with donor and political ties to the Ontario PC party. Both Premier Doug Ford and the housing minister have denied tipping off developers as it pertains to the green belt. Libby talked about the developments with interim NDP leader Peter Tabbins. What the integrity commissioner said was i need to see uh documentation showing circumstances that indicate wrongdoing uh and uh, in the case of his investigation of minister clark uh we provided an affidavit with uh a number of points of information indicating uh behavior that was extraordinarily suspicious uh, and the integrity commissioner has accepted that as enough to justify digging further. Can you uh, tell us what that is? Um, I would have to dig out the documentation for you, Libby, but part of it relates to the fact that the uh, one of the lobbyists who actually pushed very hard on making all this happen was someone who had, until April of 2022, been working in the minister's office. And uh, frankly, the recommendation or the standard we understand is that you have to stay away from a ministry that you've been working for for at least a year before you lobby. Um, it strikes us that 
this is, um, on the face of it, a substantial problem. And that's something that uh, the Integrity Commissioner considered a serious point for investigating. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, in, in terms of the Auditor General, she's just going to do a value-for-money audit. Yeah, she will, because uh, as you may be aware, um, part of the land that, well, value for money and environmental impact, I believe, um, part of the land that's been turned over to developers was land that was purchased by the province at very great cost almost two decades ago, purchased at great cost to be preserved environmentally, and uh at the time purchased by a number of very powerful developers who held on to that land and at the time uh two decades ago fought very hard to get the designation changed so that they could in fact develop uh that um, that exchange uh is worth to those developers in the hundreds of millions of dollars uh ontario bought that land it sold it at a very low price put easements on it to protect it, and frankly, we're giving away hundreds of millions of dollars of value. That matters. You know, the people of Ontario paid up. They coughed up that cash, uh, and they did it in the expectation that the land would be preserved. We're losing that. Uh, how on earth the minister justifies giving away hundreds of millions of dollars of value uh, is beyond me. Well, surely land that was purchased two decades ago uh, is now worth a lot more. Oh, it is. But given that it was in a legally uh, protected reserve so that it was not developable, um, it should have stayed as not developable. Changing the rules so that suddenly someone can realize hundreds of millions of dollars in profit undermines the investment that was made by the people of Ontario. There, there are dollar consequences here. But the other thing I'll say is this government, the Ford government, had to back off in their attack on education workers this past fall. They did have to back down on their earlier attempt to go after the green belt. So it is possible when the stars align, when public opinion polling shows they're in deep trouble, uh, that they move. And frankly, that's, I think, the, the biggest tool that people of Ontario have right now. If they express that this government's popularity uh, has dived into the basement because of this action, uh, the potential is there to get them to move back. And I would say um, a negative result from the integrity, integrity Commissioner, a negative finding about the government, um, a finding from the Auditor General that this government has effectively wasted hundreds of millions of dollars of value that belong to the people of Ontario. I think that's going to be politically damaging, and I think that can have an impact on their actions. Ontario Interim NDP Leader Peter Tabbins in discussion with Libby on Thursday. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. 
Kate in Toronto phoned to say she thinks there are untapped ways the city of Toronto could bring in revenue. Well, I think the city should be um, more forward in in uh, collecting parking, street parking fees. I live in a neighborhood, social housing. Uh, some families have two and three big crossovers. They park day and night on the street and they don't pay anything because they put a handicap parking permit in their car windows. This has gone on for years and years. I have no problem with people with handicap parking permits. I use one myself, but I pay a fee for my little parking pad. And I think if the city started clamping down on that, people who park near subway stations on side streets and parking in LCBO lots for free all day, I think the city could collect quite a bit of revenue if that's what they did. Arlene in Lindsay called about cutting out alcohol consumption. 14 years ago, I was having heart palpitations, and I was supposed to have an ablation, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to try and do this all on my own. So I did stop drinking, which was a huge factor in stopping the palpitations, and went totally vegetarian, etc. And for seven years, I was without the heart palpitations, felt fantastic. It did change my health 100%. The other thing, too, that people are very defensive on drinking That is what I found. If I go to a place where people are drinking, I'm like this conscience standing there. And I'm not their conscience. They can do whatever they want to do as far as drinking. And in my own case, I don't judge them. It's up to you to do what you want to do, etc. But there is a definite, definite health um, improvement 100% by not drinking. Margaret in Niagara also called with her thoughts on alcohol use. This topic is near and dear to me. I lost my mom in 2009. Sorry to hear that. Uh, She was, she had uh, breast cancer. She contracted at 82. And I believe she was an alcoholic all her life. And I spoke to the doctors and they believed Maybe it wasn't the root cause because she was a smoker years before, but it definitely did not help her. And I can't drink to this day um, because I saw what she went through. And it's very sad when you have to take something away from somebody that doesn't understand why. Hmm. Because their mind is totally on the alcohol. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Jody in Toronto, who says she's willing to give the idea of some public health care in private clinics a chance. The bottom line is we cannot continue the way we are. Even before the pandemic, Canadians and we in Ontario were not getting adequate or acceptable uh, medical care. Even with the uh, decrease in uh, spending and this and that and whatever, we're still not getting the health care that we need. We have to do something, Libby. We have to do something. We can't go on the way we are. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fight Back Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416 416- 
367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.